Welcome to the intersection of faith and the culture. It's Wall Builders, where we're taking on the hot topics of the day from a biblical, historical, and constitutional perspective. I'm Rick Green, America's Constitution Coach. Honored to serve here with David and Tim Barton. David's, of course, America's premier historian and our founder at Wall Builders. Tim Barton's a national speaker and pastor and president of Wall Builders. And all three of us want to ask you to have a great Thanksgiving this week, but also to share with your friends and family what Thanksgiving is all about. So our programming the rest of the week is going to be keying in on that. Today specifically, Tim is going to give us a lot of great history on Thanksgiving and just what America's all about, what the foundation was that was laid 150 years before we declared our independence. So this is going to be a really cool program today, actually recorded in the Tavern, and that entire interview with Tim is going to be released tonight on the Tavern, which you can get at Patriot U or at Warrior Poets Society Network. Either one of those networks will be airing the Tavern uh, every Tuesday night. We release it at uh, roughly, <laughs> I say roughly because it's usually at 8.30 Central and 9.30 Eastern, but sometimes we're a little late getting it up there. Anyway, it's a streaming service. Uh, both of those are streaming services where you can get the program. Now, the Tavern is an opportunity to basically talk about the the strategies and the tactics that it's going to take, revolutionary strategies and tactics it's going to take to save our country, to save our culture, to restore our constitutional republic. And so much like the founding fathers did in the taverns of old, in the in the churches, in the in the parlors of their homes, they, they got together, they they talked about what it was going to take. They they had the conversations, the civil discourse necessary to discover truth and then to fight for that truth, to encourage each other to do so. And that's why we started the show, The Tavern. We've had some great guests from, you know, John Lovell and John Cooper, uh, Kevin Freeman, Michelle Bachman, all kinds of folks. But tonight we're releasing an episode with Tim Barton and we're going to be talking about Thanksgiving. And 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 I, as always, I love to bring you little snippets here on Wall Builders of those Tavern interviews. Can't give you the whole interview. You got to go to Patriot U Order Warrior Poet Society Network to get the whole interview and the commentary and the other things that happened there in the tavern. Plus, you'll enjoy watching it, I think. So so check that out today. You can go to patriotacademy.tv, patriotacademy.tv, or you can go over to Warrior Poet Society Network. And by the way, Patriot U, uh, which is our Patriot Academy TV, is now available on Roku. So if you go to Roku and search for Patriot Academy, you can uh, you can get the, the programming there as well. That's also where you can get all of our Constitution classes, just a lot of great uh, material and information and content to to keep you encouraged and inspired and equipped and, and educated so you can get out there and make a difference in the culture, doing your part to make that difference. But today we're going to share with you a part of the Tavern interview with Tim Barton. So we're going to take a quick break here early in the program. When we come back, we'll be with Tim in the Tavern. You're listening to Wall Builders. Hey, this is Tim Barton with Wall Builders. And as you've had the opportunity to listen to Wall Builders Live, you've probably heard the wealth of information about our nation, about our spiritual heritage, about the religious liberties, about all the things that makes America exceptional. And you might be thinking, as incredible as this information is, I wish there was a way that I could get one of the Wall Builders guys to come to my area and share with my group, whether it be a church, whether it be a Christian school or public school or some political event or activity. If you're interested in having a Wall Builder speaker come to your area, you can get on our website at www.wallbuilders.com and there's a tab for scheduling. And if you'll click on that tab, you'll notice there's a list of information from speakers' bios, 
to events that are already going on and there's a section where you can request an event to bring this information about who we are, where we came from, our religious liberties and freedoms, go to the Wall Builders website and bring a speaker to your area. Welcome back to the Tavern. Thanks for staying with me. Great to have my good friend Tim Barton with me from the Wall Builders Museum in Alito, Texas. Hey, brother. Hey, man. Hey. Clank a mug with me there. Appreciate you it. coming to the Tavern. Hey, it's good, good to be with you. A Wall Builders mug. Uh, yeah. I, I, I'm going to, let's say I'm trying to figure out, let's see, I'm wondering what the team gave me. Oh, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. Okay, so. Yes, I, I could have pulled out one of the uh, mugs from the 1700s, but uh, I think it would have leaked a little bit at this point. Might have been a weird taste, too, just yeah. coming off the, uh, yeah, yeah. Could have been weird. Well, speaking of that, for, for our viewers uh, of, at Warrior Post Society Network that may not be familiar, they may not know, you've, you're sitting around, I don't know, what are you at, like 120 or 30,000 original documents, artifacts. You're literally sitting in history right now. Yeah, so uh, at Wall Builder Museum, for those that might not know, uh, we do an awful lot with American history. We have what's considered the largest uh, private collection of original documents from the founding era. Uh, we have more than 100,000 items in the collection, and I think it's somewhere between like 120 and 160. And, and, and the, we have a huge uh, portion that are originals. Uh, so actual uh, letters, writings, journals from George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin, basically any founding father someone can name, we have some of their original writings. We also have a lot of reprints of original things or copies of originals. So everything we have is focused on primary sourcing, uh, whether it is a, a copy of or the actual original itself. But when it comes to the actual original itself, we have tens of thousands of the actual original, only one handwritten letter, whatever it might be. So uh, pretty unique for us to be able to to study history with the actual documents themselves. And the artifacts, the, the the muskets, the hatchets. For someone that's hair challenged, you've actually got George Washington's hair, which I was drawn to. You know, in, in the, what is it, uh, Hamilton that he gave the ring to with a lock of his hair? How did that whole thing happen? Yeah, so we, we have a lot of artifacts as well. Uh, we have... Uh, weapons from every conflict America has been a part of since we were a nation. So we have, have muskets from the American Revolution. We have rifles from the Civil War. We have uh, rifles that were a part of World War One. Rifles that are part of World War Two. As you mentioned, we have hatchets and swords and daggers and just incredible stuff. We have cannonballs and uh, again, just lots of amazing stuff. And then along those artifacts, uh, one of of our favorites are things pertaining to George Washington. And one of the things we have from George Washington is we have a lock of his hair that when he died, Martha cut off a lock, gave it to Alexander Hamilton. Alexander Hamilton uh, uh, had that lock of hair, was divided, and a portion of that lock of hair uh, went to, I believe it was his daughter, who took that hair, had it braided, and put on a ring, and it was known as a mourning ring. They were mourning the death of George Washington, but very common back then that people might carry some hair of one of their heroes or friends or loved ones on some kind of brooch or a necklace, or in this case, a ring. So we have the actual ring from the Hamilton family that Hamilton's daughter wore that was from the hair uh, cut at the death of George Washington by Martha, given Alexander Hamilton, this incredible connection uh, and, and it's one of many things that we have pertaining to George Washington. And it's only one of several locks of hair we have from founding fathers, which seems kind of weird for most people that we have hair of dead people. But apparently it was a big deal back then. 
Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so this is not even our topic today. We'll get to Thanksgiving here in a second. But the Hamilton-Washington thing. So, like, wasn't he almost, like, mentored by Washington? Wasn't he one of his main aide-de-camps or something like that? I don't remember yeah. the exact connection. I don't even know if they talk about it in the musical, which most people, that's how they know about <laughs> Hamilton is, is the musical. But uh, but give us a little background on why his connection to, to Washington was so close. Yeah, so first of all, don't take your your knowledge of Hamilton solely on the musical. They They... Didn't and I promise not to break out in rap. We, we we will warn the no. Don't worry, Tim and I will not be doing a rap during the program. Go ahead. Yeah. 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 Well, now that that is a further thing from what we we do. Uh, but <laughs> right, like even in the musical, they they kind of did the Hollywood version retelling with a, a, a lot of misportrayals of some of the people, some of the players, and and some of what's there. And they got several things right, and then you know it was entertaining. But uh, when it goes back to Hamilton, Washington during the American Revolution, it. He believed that any letter he got, he should respond to it personally. And Hamilton was an aide-de-camp, served very closely with him during the Revolution, kind of became almost like an adopted son. Uh, Washington uh, never had any kids. When, when he married Martha, Martha had some kids. And so he had some some more or less like adopted kind of kid scenario. But he he and Martha never had any themselves. And Hamilton became similar to a son to him. Washington got to a point where... He wasn't able to keep up with the correspondence, just writing all the time. So Hamilton actually wrote the majority of Washington's correspondence, but Washington would dictate to Hamilton. So Washington would have Hamilton write, pull out some some paper and get the quill ready. This is okay. We're writing to this person. And Washington would dictate the letters. Hamilton wrote those down. So, so many of the letters of Washington during the revolution is actually in Hamilton's handwriting. Uh, Washington would sign them all to verify this is from him. But uh, there, there was a, a really unique connection. In fact, Hamilton served in Washington's administration. And then in Washington's second term as president, uh, there was a, a lot of division that happened uh, over partly uh, France was attacking America because France was in a a battle at that point with Great Britain, and they thought America should send aid. And Washington, famously in his farewell address, said we should avoid these foreign entanglements. It's because of what had been going on where France was literally attacking American trade ships, and there were people in his cabinet said we should be supporting France, and some that said, look, England is one of our great allies now at this point because we're years removed, and, and we don't need to do things to get ourselves back in. So his cabinet actually fractured, and Hamilton ended up leaving his cabinet during the second term. Uh, it, it really damaged their relationship from all the years that were there. Nonetheless, he was still close enough to Washington uh, that on the deathbed, Martha thought who who were really important people to him. Mm-hmm. And, and Washington never had uh, resentment to speak of to Hamilton. It's just that Hamilton had a problem with people in the administration and the fact that Washington wasn't being strong enough to resolve this problem or whatever it was. So he got frustrated and left. But there's a lot of really interesting Hamilton-Washington connections throughout uh, early American history. Well, and you guys, uh, another another rabbit trail here, but you guys actually have a reenactment of the whole Hamilton Burr uh, duel and all that kind of stuff in one of the one of the videos that you do from years ago, and and so all that history is there. And you mentioned the documents, and actually referring to the actual documents, so much about what wall of of what wall builders puts out. You know the books, the the, the videos, the audios, the uh, the advice that you give to congressmen, all of that stuff. You literally have a, a working library there where you go into these original documents. So if a congressman calls and says, as we talk about in our Constitutional Live class, you know, hey, uh, you know, should we be bailing out companies? Has that ever happened before? What did Congress do? You know, you guys actually go dive into and go find the debates where Madison talks about that kind of stuff. Um, so I just think that's really unique. Most people yeah. get online, they go to Google or they go to 
you know, you know, some other uh, online source and see what some professor says about it. You guys actually go to the original documents. That's that's unique in 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 the whole scope of policy and trying to figure out what are the right things to put into the culture, what are the right answers constitutionally. Uh, y'all are in a really u- unique position to yeah. be able to do that. Yeah, and it's something, I mean, obviously, Rick, we, we spend a lot of time together. We discuss this often. It's something that's becoming increasingly important in the culture we live in when so much of of the culture is being fragmented. And, and everybody at this point knows that we're being lied to, right, by mainstream media. We're being lied to by politicians. And, and we know we're being yeah. lied to even by professors, by educators. And so it comes to the point where we're kind of asking, like, who can we trust anymore? And one of the things yeah. that we openly will acknowledge is that you shouldn't trust anybody. You shouldn't trust us until you verify, right? Kind of the old Ronald Reagan adage that we trust, but verify. And it's a reason we put footnotes in everything we do. We we encourage people, please don't take our word for this. Like go look this up. And and here's the place where, here's the letter that John Adams wrote Thomas Jefferson, where he said this, we want people to know because we don't want people to continue to be misled by the lies in culture. And, And one thing that we recognize too, is the reason we can with, with incredible confidence say, please don't trust us on this. Let's let us show you this is where you find the letter this is where you find that proclamation whatever it is truth is not insecure truth truth doesn't mind being fact-checked because it knows what's true it is only people that are lying that want to prevent the honest presentation of truth and facts it's the reason dr fauci right when he was telling us just trust the science you mean you don't want us to fact check you right like what are you trying to hide right now that should have been a major indicator for many of us and actually it was for many of us nonetheless in culture we, we need to get to the place that we don't just trust somebody explicitly because they said it, it must be true. No, we, we had to go back and actually, let's do a little due diligence. Let's go back and look up and yeah. see what's there. And we try to make that really easy for people. So whenever we write articles, whenever we write books, we will have thousands of footnotes that we will put to make sure when we're saying somebody said something, don't take our word for it. Here's the actual letter. Here's the actual writing where he said that. And we would encourage people to go back and read that whole letter one of the things that, that we've often tried to point out to people as we make the case for a, a religious, a biblical influence in the founding of America, as we make the case for the founding fathers being incredibly honorable people or whatever it is that we're talking about in those given moments, we usually take like the cliff notes, the highlights to present to people to make it very easy and palatable for them to understand. But we tell them there's so much more to the story than what we're telling. And, and, and the more to the story actually even supports the premise that we're trying to communicate. If, if we would take time and go back and look, we would see there's so much more there. And the reason we encourage people to go back and look is not just to verify what we're saying, but to realize that we're only giving you the tip of the iceberg. When we talk about, for example, the Bible was the number one influence in early America, the number one influence on the founding fathers. We, we can say that and then we can give you a few quotes and examples But if you go back and look, and and professors actually did this back in the 1990s, and they identified that over 34% of all of the quotes that they were able to identify in the founders' writings came from the Bible. It it was that's a third. That's one out of three. One out of three is they're they're quoting directly from the Bible. Correct. But I mean, by far the most significant source that influenced them in who they were and what they did and their writings and, and the ideas, philosophies they put forward, these secular professors said that one third of everything, they 34% of everything they found came from the Bible. And they actually even went further and explained that they were only including things that were directly in quotation marks in those quotes. 
those professors pointed out that there was far more Bible language and Bible references they saw, but for the point of their study, they were only including what was in quotation marks. Had they included things that they knew were from the Bible or Bible references, it would have been far more than M- meaning like they might have they might have paraphrased something or they might have included a Bible verse in a story, but they didn't quote the verse specifically. So that did, that one they didn't even count. Yeah, correct. Like what when when Benjamin Franklin famously has his call to prayer at the Constitutional Convention, and he says, "If a sparrow can't fall to the ground without his notice." Is it probable that an empire could rise without his aid? And he goes through and, he, and he's just quoting verses, right? And he talks about the learning from the Tower of Babel. Well, the Tower of Babel is in Genesis and in, in the Bible. Yeah. What they pointed out was that if if they included all of those kind of references, it would have been significantly more than 34%. But the reason, again, I'm even using this as an example, is that the things that we're telling people, this is stuff that is is pretty identifiable. And if people went back and looked, they would find there's so much more evidence and information there than just the the small piece that we are presenting. But yeah. it's also the reason that we want to footnote everything, say, don't take our word for it, go back and look. Uh, and that's also kind of now full circle. What is so fun for us about being in this museum and this an active library is that we get to spend time every single day going through original writings and seeing what do the founding fathers actually think about the constitution, right? About the first amendment, second amendment, whatever it is. Well, if they wrote it down, we, we probably have their writings in our museum and our library, and we can go to those original writings and verify what did they actually say? What do they, what do they believe about the second amendment, right? Was, was it just a militia? Was it the people? How does that work? Well, they were very clear about the second amendment. We have a book about that. They were very clear about this. And this is where we are way too often confused in culture about the original intent. And it's only because we haven't taken time to go back and read and study. And we try to make that available for people to go back and learn the history, learn the foundation of America. There's so many things, man, that you've said that we could take off on. I mean, I mean, first of all, just for people to understand that, you know, when we teach all this kind of stuff, there's like the surface level, like you're saying, where you can in a, in a one hour presentation or in a television show or whatever, talk about it. But the depth of other quotes and it, it's why I, I love when a wall, when wall builders comes out with a book, it'll be like, OK, if the book is this thick, it'll be like all this great information. And then a quarter of the book is just the references and all these hundreds and hundreds, sometimes thousands of references. And speaking of books and then speaking of lies. OK, so you got a book called The American Story that covers all the things that we're going to talk about on Thanksgiving is so much more of that history. But let's begin with the lies. I mean, of course, you know, our understanding of Thanksgiving is white man is the worst thing that ever happened to the world. The Indians were just frolicking in fields and happy whenever we came here and we ruined all of that, right? I mean, that's the the, the true story of Thanksgiving, not all this stuff about, you know, Indians and, and pilgrims eating together. And so so let's get the truth, man. What's the story of Thanksgiving that you want people to, to be able to share with their families this Thursday? And I hope people know I'm being, you know, a little bit sarcastic. Okay. Well, I mean, to your point, like I, I would even say there's a reason that you are seeing some major cities coming out openly saying we shouldn't celebrate Thanksgiving. For example, Austin, Texas, instead of Thanksgiving, they say it's a day of mourning. Well, that's what there are some native tribes that have pushed in uh, kind of this new woke ideology saying that we shouldn't celebrate Thanksgiving because this is when the white people stole all of the the natives land and, and America's bad and evil, et cetera, et cetera. And to your point, kind of the premise is that the Native American were this this peaceful farming community who were unaccustomed to war. There was no violence in America, right, until the Western Europeans showed up. And then it brought all of this danger and destruction. I mean, there's so many crazy things with that premise. Uh, as a Texan, there's a great book that covers some Texas history, uh, specifically with some of the native tribes and uh, kind of the development of Texas. It's called The Empire of the Summer Moon. 
and it, it goes into a little bit of the Comanches and the early settlers and, and, and even Mexico, what was going on. It's a fascinating book. But what it shows you is is kind of what we should already know is that no people is perfect. No, no people group is perfect, that everybody has their own issues. And sometimes yeah. there are certain groups that have more issues than others. That's absolutely true. But it's not as if right? The, the, the Disney version that these natives were only trying to like paint with the colors of the wind. That's not really the accurate representation or depiction. But, but even to this, if you go back to the pilgrims where the argument often is that the, the white man stole all the natives land, this is so inaccurate when it comes to the pilgrims, because when, when we look at the first Thanksgiving, the pilgrims arrive in November of 1620. And I'm going to give kind of a brief thought and then we'll back up until and unpack a little bit more of that story. But the first okay. Thanksgiving is the fall of 1621. And when they have that first Thanksgiving, the, the, I think the Plymouth Historic Society said that there were 53 pilgrims that were still alive. They actually identify them by name. So they they know who these people were. Chief Massasoit was the chief of the Wampanoag Indians. He arrived and, and was invited to the first Thanksgiving. The, the pilgrims and the Wampanoag Indians had a very good relationship at that point. And Chief Massasoit came with 90 male braves. Now, of the 53 pilgrims that were there, I think the Plymouth Historic Society said there were maybe 22 what would be considered adult fighting age males, uh, males between 13 and I think 60 years old that could be considered kind of like warriors if a fight came. And what's worth noting is the argument that the white man stole all the land from the natives. Had the pilgrims stolen land from the Wampanoags, that first Thanksgiving could have gone real different. No doubt. there's, There's 90 braves that are there. And the the majority of the pilgrims are women, children, and elderly. So they they couldn't defend themselves against these incredible warriors had yeah. they come to that. But the reality is that that's not what happened on the first Thanksgiving. The first Thanksgiving lasted for three days. The pilgrims definitely had times uh, of Thanksgiving to God, uh, thanking God that they had survived, that God had brought them friends and allies. And, and these these friends were showing them how to survive in the new world. There was a time of prayer and Thanksgiving. Then there were times of feasting. There was athletic competitions. They would do races and shooting matches and and all, wrestling matches, all kinds of stuff they would do. What's worth noting, though, is, is if you're hanging out at a, a party for three days, that's a lot of food. Where did the food come from? The Wampanoag Indians brought the majority of the food. They, they brought the deer. They brought the eel. They brought the lobster. They brought the majority of the food because to this point, the pilgrims still have not found any kind of abundance. They, they've grown enough crops. They've hunted enough that they might survive the coming winter, but they're not living in this abundance that so often we think about the first Thanksgiving having a feast. The only reason they had a, the ability, capacity to eat for three days was because of what the natives provided for them. And this again goes back to the point that the modern narrative that the white man stole all the land from the natives and, and, and the white man was so evil and, and, and right, all the things, genocide and disease and whatever else they did, it, it's a very incomplete picture. And it's certainly not the picture of the first Thanksgiving. Man, Tim, we hit so many things. I, I really want to encourage people, follow Wall Builders. Uh, Tim and I do a daily radio program together. It's just like a half a half an hour long. Um, you can catch it on about 300 stations around the country. It's available there at wallbuilders.com. But um, people need to plug in. Last thing I'll ask you, have you also noticed an uptick in interest in these topics that, that we're talking about? People are more willing to look backwards to say, okay, what are the inputs? How did how did we become a great nation? Why are we falling away from being a great nation? How do I you know become a, a part of this? As our audiences are growing, it tells yeah. me that 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 people are hungry for these truths that you're talking about, and not the, 
you know, not the sugar-coated stuff that they're getting from the major media. Yeah, I totally agree. There's a lot of people waking up, uh, many for the first time, that are, are are recognizing this is really bad. Somebody needs to do something. And, and we're seeing people begin to pursue truth, recognizing that we can't trust what the mainstream media is telling us, right? We can't trust what we're seeing on social media. We need to dig a little bit deeper. And so we're seeing a lot of positive things. And, you know, Rick, one of the things that we've talked about on our radio program before, I think it's worth noting in American history, there were times when the nation had a lot of problems. And defining times, you look back, that you had what was known as the first great awakening. In the mid-1700s, it laid the foundation for America to be unified that led to the American Revolution. The second great awakening was uh, 1800 to roughly 1860. And the second great awakening, a lot of people think of the great awakenings as, as kind of a unifying time in America because we, that's what we think of like revival or like God's moving, people are waking up. Well, if you study the first and second Great Awakening, these were some of the most divided times in American history. It was polarizing. People didn't always get along. They didn't agree. And yet the second Great Awakening has an easy example. The, the, the most famous pastor leader from the second Great Awakening was a man named Charles Finney. Charles Finney is a really outspoken evangelist in that period, uh, second Great Awakening. But it's believed about 100,000 people converted to Christianity under his influence during the second Great Awakening. Well, during the second Great Awakening is also when the the, the slavery issue is at an all-time high. Uh, in fact, the nation is being divided over position of slavery. Uh, you have the, the Kansas-Nebraska Act and you have the Missouri Compromise. And, and right, the nation is literally being torn apart over what's going to happen with slavery. And this was considered a second great awakening. And, and what's worth noting from a historic standpoint is if you look back at, at some of the most noted times that were considered great awakenings when God was on the move, it, weren't, it, it wasn't times, they weren't times of unity in America. They were times of clarity. They, they, they were times that people were debating truth and morality, and ultimately truth and morality prevailed. Now, in a couple of these occasions, it led to some pretty significant conflict for truth and morality to ultimately prevail. But what yeah. we're seeing right now, I think, is is very much reflective of historically what we consider a great awakening, that, man, God is waking people up, and people are beginning to pursue truth and recognize that we're being lied to, and that's not right. People's eyes are being opened, but awakenings are not times of unity. They're times of clarity. And I think right now there's a lot of people gaining some clarity that are recognizing, right? Like this, this gender transitioning of kids, that's wrong. Sexualizing of kids, that's wrong. We're gaining some clarity over a issue that's dividing culture in a lot of respects. Things that shouldn't be all that dividing, right? We, we shouldn't be all that divided to say that what Hamas is doing is evil. But that, that shouldn't be dividing. And yet, what we're seeing is a nation divided over issues that shouldn't be confusing. But for a lot of people, they're gaining some clarity to say that we recognize there's some things that are right and wrong. And, and now more and more people are gaining courage to be willing to stand up and say that I'm not going to tolerate and stand by while evil happens. And I'm going to stand up and I'm going to encourage and promote the good. And that's what we need in this nation. Amen, brother. What a great, great discussion. There's, there, there's so much there, folks. So we only got a taste of it. You got to get the rest by going and watching The Tavern. But for the rest of this week, we'll have some additional Thanksgiving programming for you right here on Wallbuilders. We stand undivided.